Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The kitten had been loitering around the back garden for a while now, turning up from time to time and scrabbling around in the dirt. He was looking for food and no doubt finding plenty of tasty morsels to prey upon. The animal was small and grubby looking, clearly a stray, with no permanent home to go to. At least, not for the time being. After watching it from the window a few times, David began to venture out and sit on the back step. He wanted to try and get the kitten's attention. He left a saucer of milk outside on a whim and found himself buying cat food from the supermarket the next time he did his grocery shop. Gradually, the kitten would come closer, its fears easing, trust building. Soon, he and the kitten eased into the steady companionship of owner and pet. David named his new friend Tinker, and Tinker made himself resolutely at home, privy to all David's comings and goings a permanent eyewitness to his life. But little did David know that his beloved feline friend would eventually become the smoking gun in a horrifying murder investigation, which would make an indelible mark on British forensic science forever. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 19, The Cat Hair. South Sea Beach in Hampshire, on the southern coast of England, stretches from Old Portsmouth to Eastney. It's made up mainly of flinty shingle underfoot, although a stretch of sand is exposed at low tide. It's not the perfect place for a day of sunbathing, 
but there's a certain charm and appeal that only the coastline can bring. It was the 3rd of July 2012 in the late afternoon. The day had been bright and mild, and as the sun set, the warm glow of golden hour set across the beach. A group of foreign students walked along the shoreline. Even though some had splintered off into pairs or small groups, they were undeniably part of the same collective, all roughly the same age, speaking in their native tongue, coming back together regularly like a murmuration of birds. The group laughed and chatted, enjoying each other's company and immersing themselves in this new place that they were visiting. It wasn't like home, and they were enjoying the newness of it all. They drifted along, kicking pebbles or empty plastic bottles out of their way. One of the group, looking over to his left, remarked on a pile of bin liners next to the seawall. He idled towards it to get a closer look, ready to bemoan the prevalence of litter on the beach. But this wasn't litter. The students could tell immediately they'd stumbled across something much worse. Some of the group hung back while others tried to discern exactly what they were seeing and also trying to block out the strange smell which hung in the air and permeated their nostrils. There were bin bags strewn haphazardly, as well as something that looked like an old cloth or rug covered in reddish-brown stains. And there were flies everywhere. They looked at one another, concerned, fearful. I think we should call the police, one of them said. A large portion of South Sea Beach was cordoned off with police tape as search teams got to work. And from a distance, tourists and locals watched the neon-coated officers patrol the scene. Forensic officers, dressed all in black, placed small yellow triangles on the shingle, presumably, thought the onlookers, marking pieces of evidence. Soon, rumours began to spread of the gruesome discovery of exactly what the black bin liners and what turned out to be an old curtain contained. A torso had been found, butchered and bloody. There were legs too, and a pelvis. At first glance to the officers, they looked to belong to a man, and the news sent shockwaves through the community. Officers, realising the severity of what they were dealing with, tried to stay calm and process the scene with clinical efficiency. People were told to keep back, to move along, and cordons were put up around nearby Richmond Road. Statements were taken from the group of students who'd first alerted the police to the bin bags. Had they touched anything, seen anything? Exactly what time had they first made the discovery? Tidal experts were called in to assess whether the body had been washed in from the sea or whether the missing parts might have been washed out. It appeared to the officers that the bags had been deliberately dumped on the beach by the wall, but by whom and when? And, of course, all the evidence was carefully transported for post-mortem. Though, without a full body to examine and identify, Everyone knew this would be no ordinary investigation. In fact, the result of the post-mortem was inconclusive. 
It found that the man had been subjected to a sustained and violent assault before his passing. But an exact cause of death was unable to be determined. Nor was it possible to determine who exactly he was. Once the scene and the body parts had been meticulously processed, Detective Chief Inspector Dick Pearson of Hampshire Police released a statement. The fact that we are unable to use more conventional methods to identify the victim, such as fingerprints or dental records, is challenging, he said. Indeed, this was a case which would test all of the normal policing procedures. They had a body, but no identity, no suspect, no weapon, no motive and no crime scene but they had to hope that what they had might contain some clues which could take the investigation further. The detective revealed that work was ongoing to find the crime scene, which might not be in the local area, and he warned that other body parts may have been discarded or may be found elsewhere. He warned that anyone who noticed suspicious packages, possibly wrapped in black bin liners, should not open them, but contact police immediately. Behind the scenes, the investigation was already in full swing. Over the next few weeks, approximately 280 police personnel would work on the case. 466 statements would be gathered and 411 officers' reports written up. 1,369 exhibits made their way through forensic testing. Appeals were made in the local newspaper and then the national press picked up on the story. A dismembered body on a beach was headline-grabbing stuff, and the officers needed all the help they could get. So they leaned on the media, hoping that someone somewhere would have some clues. Missing persons databases were checked. Had anyone been reported missing who might match the slimmest of descriptions the police had of their victim? Were there any violent prisoners who had escaped or recently been released? Detectives had to use every tool in their armoury to try and find something to go on. And they hoped, and perhaps suspected, that forensic evidence would provide a clue. Did the bin bags hold any fingerprints? Were they unique in any way, which might give a clue as to where they had been bought? And what about the curtain? Could that be placed in a home or a shop? Was it distinctive? Did it contain any clues as to who had done this? Well, there was one piece of evidence, or should I say eight pieces, that were of particular interest to forensic officers. Eight fine strands of what looked like cat hair. The hairs had been found on the curtain that some body parts had been wrapped up in. Some of the hairs were even effectively woven into the fibres of the curtain, as if they'd been there a while. So did the murder unfold in a house where a cat lived? It certainly felt like that might be the case. But how could those hairs help police find the killer? Hampshire police constables decided to send the hairs off for DNA testing. They had little else to go on. And if this could narrow down their search, then it could be invaluable. There was no specific facility for such testing in the UK. So the officers made the 4,000-mile trip to a forensic lab in California where the hairs would be analysed for something called mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down from a mother cat to her kittens. It was a long shot, but being armed with conclusive evidence from the cat hairs might just narrow down a suspect. Though the police didn't have to wait long for one of those. 
From the hundreds of messages, leads, suspicions and insights which came in from the public, one call would cut through all the others. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Shoreham Police Station in Sussex, 46 miles away from South Sea Beach, was closed on the evening of the 5th of July. The days of a 24-hour police station were long gone in this part of the world. The man shook the doors in frustration. He'd been ready to go inside. He needed to speak to someone. Then he noticed the free phone fixed to a wall. He lifted the receiver and in a slurry, confused cadence, spoke to the police operator. He introduced himself as David Hilder. I would like to speak to someone, David said. I think I've done something serious. He told the operator at the other end of the line that he'd found a lot of empty Nurofen wrappers in his pocket, implying he might have taken an overdose of painkillers. But when he was urgently asked if he needed an ambulance, David replied steadily, I need to speak to a copper first, he said. I think I've killed someone. PC Stephen Miles was about to take the first sip of a much-needed cup of tea when he was told about the strange call which had come in from just outside the station. He set his cup down purposefully and headed for the exit. It wasn't unheard of for time wasters or hoax callers to use the yellow phone to call officers outside. PC Miles was ready to read them the riot act on wasting police time. But this wasn't troublesome kids. Outside, PC Miles was met by a dishevelled man in dirty clothes. The man was clearly confused. He kept repeating, I'm not sure what I've done. PC Miles guided the gentleman into the station. He needed to get to the bottom of this, or at the very least calm the man down. As they sat down in a warm room and someone went to fetch a glass of water and a hot drink, the man twisted his hands in agitation. PC Miles tried to be reassuring, keeping his voice calm and steady as the man began to speak of flashbacks. Horrible flashbacks. Then he said, If I've done what I think I've done, then I'm going to kill myself. When PC Miles pressed him further, he shook his head and shut down. But during this strange, unprompted meeting, the man did reveal who he was. A 46-year-old scrap metal dealer by the name of David Hilder, who lived on Richmond Road, Southsea, in Portsmouth, in the neighbouring county of Hampshire. PC Miles had dealt with plenty of welfare checks like these before and always followed procedure to the letter. Life was tough and people often went off the rails. Was this a cry for help? The ramblings of a man who was unwell? 
the constable excused himself and walked down the corridor to his office. Moving his mug of now cold tea out of the way, he picked up the receiver and dialed Hampshire police to see if they had any knowledge of the rambling man. While David Hilda was taken for medical checks in Shoreham and Sussex, a team of Hampshire police officers were dispatched to check his Portsmouth flat. Was there any sign that the man's fears were true? Had he done something awful? When they called back, they told PC Miles that they hadn't found anything suspicious. The flat seemed fine. This was just a case of someone talking nonsense, a welfare issue, not a criminal one. The relief seemed to run through David Hilda's whole body when he was told the news, his entire face relaxing. He said, must have been all in my head then. A couple of hours later, Mr Hilda was discharged and put on a train back to Portsmouth. Notes were made on his file, and mental health support would no doubt follow. If the man made any more claims at another police station, his record would show he'd already been dealt with. PC Miles thought that was the end of a very long day and finally began to look forward to that cup of hot tea. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the eight cat hairs found on the bloody curtain were being tested. This wasn't the lab's first rodeo and animal DNA had cracked numerous cases in the States already. In 1994, a Canadian woman named Shirley Duguay was found dead in a shallow grave. Her estranged husband, Douglas Beamish, had owned a white cat named Snowball. Investigators determined that one of the key pieces of evidence in the case, a discarded leather jacket, was covered with Shirley's blood and had cat hair in one of its pockets. DNA analysis of the cat hairs provided a match to Snowball's genetic signature. And experts tested about 20 other cats from the area to show that the signature was rare that it categorically could only have been Snowball's hair in the pocket. It was a smoking gun that ensured Beamish was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 15 years in prison. A researcher involved in that case, Robert Gran of the University of California at Davis, said at the time that cats were particularly well-suited for forensic analysis due to their clingy hairs, as well as their habit of licking themselves for grooming. Cats are fastidious groomers, and shed fur can have sufficient genetic material for trace forensic studies, Gran and his colleagues wrote in a paper published in Forensic Science International. Since then, there had been growing interest in pet DNA databases for forensic purposes, and such evidence has figured in several prosecutions in the United States. In 1998, for example, dog DNA was used as evidence leading to the conviction of two Seattle men on charges of first-degree murder and animal cruelty. But this was a first for Hampshire police. And for Britain. By this time, a South Sea resident had been reported missing by his family. 30-year-old David Guy lived in a campervan not far from Richmond Road in Southsea. Not far from David Hilder, in fact. And initial investigations into David Guy's disappearance revealed that actually the two Davids were friends and had been for over a decade. They referred to each other as Big Dave 
and Little Dave. Big Dave, Hilda, would regularly help Little Dave with food, providing meals or doing a food shop. He'd also let Little Dave bathe or shower in his flat if he needed to. On the face of it, this was a simple, positive friendship. But investigating officers who questioned other acquaintances of the duo discovered it wasn't a friendship that was always plain sailing. They butted heads from time to time. And Hilda had been violent towards Guy before. On one occasion, because Guy had failed to properly look after Hilda's beloved cat, Tinker, when he'd gone away. Their relationship was described as codependent and volatile. And in light of David Guy going missing, that was important. Detectives in Hampshire investigating the disappearance saw the notes on David Hilda's police file of strange ramblings and a concern for welfare. Something was amiss, and with the added information of his friend now being missing, attention turned once again to Hilda's flat. The first search had been a cursory one, officers checking that there were no obvious signs of anything sinister. But now, a team of forensic scenes of crime officers set to work, and it didn't take them long to find something. Drops of blood were discovered inside the property, and they were immediately sent away for laboratory testing. Did the blood belong to David Hilder, to the missing man David Guy, or someone else? The forensic lab soon confirmed that the blood in Hilda's flat did belong to David Guy. And with Hilda's comments to police about having done something bad, they feared the worst. But David Guy was a regular visitor to Hilda's house. They were friends, and there were dozens of reasons why some spots of blood could be found there. Perhaps he'd cut himself shaving had an accident and needed some first aid. The presence of blood was a key piece of evidence, but it wouldn't provide the smoking gun. By now, the officers involved in the body in the bag investigation were involved too, and the two inquiries became one when tests confirmed that the remains found on the beach were those of David Guy. Police now had a victim and a suspect but they didn't have evidence which would prove their case. The search of the house had found more than just blood. Not surprisingly, cat hair was also present. And to the eye, those hairs looked very similar to the ones which had been sent off to the California lab for testing. The cat hairs found on the curtains used to wrap David Guy's body. But the team had to be sure. A few weeks later... The lab had the results. The cat DNA from the hair found on the curtains at the body disposal site was a match to the cat DNA in the hairs found at Hilda's house. Bingo. Or was it? Was this incontrovertible proof that Tinker was the producer of the hairs in both locations? Or did cat's DNA work differently? Was a match like this rare or actually quite commonplace in felines. Hampshire police needed to be sure. This was a new technique on British shores, and they knew a judge and a jury 
would need to be convinced that the evidence from the cat hair was ironclad. Getting to trial only to have the case thrown out over insubstantial evidence about a cat hair no less wasn't an option. So Hampshire police enlisted the help of another forensic team, this time in the UK with the aim of obtaining blood samples from a number of cats. John Wetton, a geneticist from the University of Leicester, led the CAT DNA project. John had already created a database for dogs while at Britain's Forensic Science Service, and he was sure he could create a database with cats. So, alongside PhD student Barbara Ottolini, and with the cooperation of vets across the country, 152 British cats were tested and their DNA added to a primitive feline database. DNA samples from only three cats matched the profile from the scene. Three from 152. The chances that another cat had deposited hair at one or other locations were slim. And now the police felt their case was strong enough to go to trial. For weeks, the scene played out at Winchester Crown Court and prosecutors laid out their case for the jury. This was a case unlike many others. David Guy's full body still hadn't been recovered, so the precise manner of his death couldn't be determined, nor could the exact day or time of death. And either due to David Hilda's mental state, his learning disability, or his determination to keep the details to himself, he hadn't revealed anything to fill in the blanks of how the murder unfolded. The twelve men and women of the jury sat in the court and heard about David Hilda and David Guy's friendship, about their volatile arguments alongside moments of generosity. They heard that Hilda was in some respects dominant in this friendship and would use violence to punish his younger friend, who remained dependent on him. They also heard how the night of the murder was believed to have played out, as the prosecutor said, It seems most likely that the two of you quarrelled. You had a sudden loss of self-control and stabbed him through the chest with a sharp blade, causing him to die almost instantly. They went on to describe how Hilda mutilated and cut up Guy's body, in a manner that was both painstaking and deliberate. Then, police described their theory that David Hilda had transported David Guy's body parts across the town using his bicycle, which had a container on the front, dumping some on the other side of the seawall on South Sea Beach. David Hilda was cleared of murder, but convicted of manslaughter at Winchester Crown Court, and Justice David Bean sentenced him to a minimum of 12 years in prison. After the verdict... A statement from Mr Guy's father, Michael, was read to the court in which he said, In time, I will come to terms with my loss. But it is the cutting up of my son's body I cannot accept and never will. Somehow I will have to carry this pain in my soul for the rest of my life. But the case created a legacy in terms of its very unusual smoking gun. This is the first time cat's DNA has been used in a criminal trial in the UK, John Wetton said in a statement following the trial. He added, This could be a real boon for forensic science, as the 10 million cats in the UK are unwittingly tagging the clothing 
in more than a quarter of households. The Associated Press quoted police as saying, Tinker was alive and well and living with new owners. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3.99 per month.